to Autism in the Adult podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Teresa Regan, an adult neuropsychologist. I specialize in brain behavior relationships for those 14 and older. I'm the parent of an amazing teen on the autism spectrum and a certified autism specialist. I am deeply grateful to bring validation, hope, and purpose to individuals and their families living on the autism spectrum. With this mission at its core, I founded and currently direct the OSF Healthcare Adult Diagnostic Autism Center in Central Illinois. My books include Understanding Autism in Adults and Aging Adults and Understanding Autistic Behaviors. For more information and to join my online community for free, visit www.adultandgeriatricautism.com. Please join me in helping individuals, couples, and families thrive while living life on the autism spectrum. Hello, this is Dr. Regan, your host for the podcast, Autism in the Adult. This topic was brought up to me recently by a colleague, and I thought we could talk about it today in this podcast. And the topic is grief reactions or depressive reactions in the autism spectrum, what to expect, how those might look, and how to help. So grief reactions may occur if there has been the loss of a relationship, the loss of a loved one. It could include the loss of a job. So many times this has to do with the loss of something significant in a person's life, the loss of an animal, And really, this 2020 year has been a year of loss for many people, whether that's economic or relationship or just the access to schools and things that we really have valued in our community in the midst of the pandemic. But also our everyday lives keep going too, and we lose loved ones or we struggle with relationships or perhaps lose a position in a company, uh, lose our job, for example. So in the autism spectrum, this may look different. And the value of noticing what grief looks like in the autism spectrum is that we can realize where the behavior is rooted. A behavior may look confusing, for example, but we can realize, oh, this is an expression of grief. This is what grief looks like in this individual. And we can also understand why the person may not be using words to describe what they feel, or they may not look typically sad, for example. So the reaction of grief on the spectrum may seem confusing to neurotypicals around them, perhaps wanting to support this individual or perhaps grieving themselves and wanting to come together in grief. So what might grief look like for someone on the spectrum? Now, of course, there are a myriad of ways that are very individualized that grief might be expressed. But in general, you might notice a few different things. One is that Oftentimes, the individual on the spectrum may look less emotional in their face or perhaps their voice in general, but 
when they come across strong emotions in themselves or strong emotions in other people, that may feel very overwhelming to them. And they might be more apt to shut down or withdraw in the midst of strong emotions in their environment. So many might say, for example, that they distance themselves from people who are quite emotional because they are unable to balance that level of emotional input. So if someone is grieving and their family is grieving, if there are people crying in the atmosphere, people wanting to hug, people wanting to look the individual in the eye and have deep conversations, this type of input may be very difficult to balance and it may feel overwhelming. This person then may make less eye contact than usual. The individual might retreat to their own room, their own space, and they may also just look shut down, like they're really not participating in the grief, the community grief response. And that may look cold to the individuals watching. It may look that they like they don't care, but in actuality, they are so impacted that they can't stay in the midst of the communal grief and still feel okay. And so they may even withdraw to their own space and do their favorite activity. Perhaps that's a video game or perhaps it's sorting through a collection. And again, this may be misunderstood as someone who's really not impacted at all by the big thing that has happened in this family, in this community. But often what you'll see is they will retreat to their favorite activities when they are overwhelmed. So these activities, these repetitious kinds of behaviors and activities may actually be very soothing and calming. So the things that are known to the individual, that are common, that are repeated, those kinds of activities and objects and tasks often are very soothing. And so if they retreat to go to their room and they start to play a video game, they still may be processing in their own way this new emotion of loss and the very intense communal emotional atmosphere and that therefore protect their emotional um, their internal emotional state by withdrawing and then do some soothing activities by engaging in their favorite activity. It is very easy to misinterpret this and we cannot expect the autistic individual to be able to verbalize exactly what's happening. So they are likely to be unable to say, I am so impacted by this person's death and so upset that I just need my own space and I need to do something comforting to me. You know, you're just not going to get that. And very often they're not going to be aware of their internal space enough to say something like that. Some people will. But just 
within my experience, the experience in the literature, what we see over time, we can look back and say, oh, that's why this person retreated and played this game. Um, So it's really important to be able to interpret what looks atypical, unusual, or perhaps uh, unemotional in the context of grief. We can also see an increase in the prominence of other autistic features. So for example, we mentioned this retreat to the fixed interest. So for the person on the spectrum, their brain really attaches very passionately to certain topics and activities. And so they may retreat to this repetition as something that's comforting. In addition, there are other qualities that you might see intensified. For example, in the sensory processing domain, if someone has sensory sensitivities, let's say they're sensitive to noise or it's very difficult for them to tolerate touch or certain types of fabrics or the feel of certain food in their mouth or their ability to brush their teeth, these kinds of sensitivities may be heightened during periods of stress and grief um, and internal turmoil or depression. One woman said, I know what kind of a day I'm going to have when I try to brush my teeth in the morning. And if it's a day where I'm so intensely, even more sensitive than usual, I know that that's a sign that my system is struggling. And the day is probably going to feel like a struggle as well. And for people who are supporting this individual, we can take that as a clue too. We could say, oh, wow, this person is even more intolerant of noise today. They are struggling. This is a sign of struggle. And in the context of grief, this may be what has triggered this more intense struggle. The individual may also show more repetitive behaviors. So things like repetitive movements. For some, this repetitive movement might look like rocking or spinning. Um, Another repetitive movement might look like uh, tapping out certain sequences with their fingers on the table or pacing for hours around a perimeter. Another stereotyped behavior can involve verbalization. So this could be like a catchphrase. It could be repeating what this person has just said, repeating themselves or repeating you. So for example, someone might say, oh, I'm going to go to the store now. I'm going to get going to the store. And the individual may hide it in daily life and just act like they're emphasizing themselves, but this repetitive verbal loop uh, can actually be part of the repetition, the neurological repetition in autism. And you can see that heightened at certain times. And certainly when someone's struggling and having stress, you can see that repetition increase. Again, it could be a clue to people around them or just to the individual themselves, that when I tend to do this more often, it's probably a sign that this 
is a period of struggle for me in my life. Repetitive use of objects. This might include sorting items or lining them up or patterning them. It could include arranging a collection that they have of objects that are important to them. They may want to carry a specific object with them or use it in a specific way, uh, rolling it in their hands, flipping it. That type of thing may increase as well. Rituals can be present in autism. So perhaps someone in their mind feels it's very important to do uh, five things in the same sequence every time they leave the house, regardless of whether it's meaningful or functional. Maybe they check the, uh, that the stove is turned off. Maybe they pet the dog's head five times in a row. Then they go outside and smell the fresh air three times in a row. And you can see how this sequence of activities can become more of a ritual than something that's functional. For the brain in autism, that loop of repetition can, can encourage these kind of ritual patterns. And so these might be something that you notice is more intense or more rigid. So perhaps when the person is doing well, they can actually maybe interrupt this ritual more easily or give it up on a certain day. But in the midst of grief, perhaps it is very fixed and the person might become very restless or agitated if this ritual is interrupted. And also just the quality of difficulty with change. So they may be more attached to their schedule, their repetition, their routine. They may be less likely to tolerate deviating from that. So if you want to go on a small trip or if you even want to take them to the store with you, you know, these things may be uh, much greater obstacles during times of struggle, during times of grief or depression than it would if they were really going through a good season. Like I'm actually doing good. I'm feeling good. I'm a little bit more flexible than usual. I'm not as overwhelmed. But during grief, you can see that become more overwhelming, more intractable, less flexible. Let's talk a little bit about how the person can be supported during this time. So even though sometimes medicines can add a layer of biochemical support to the, the chemistry of the system, it's not going to be enough to change the whole kind of rut of that difficulty uh, most of the time. Most of the time we can have a goal that that medication is going to be a layer of support that is really welcome, uh, that is nice to have on there, but we have to do other things as well. So let's talk about what other things might be helpful. You know, one of the difficult things about a relationship loss or the loss of a person to death, the loss of a job, those kinds of things, a lot of times loss is unexpected. And even when it is expected, the exact timing of it and the way that it occurs 
can actually be unpredictable. So one of the difficult things about death is that let's say we have someone in our family and they have been struggling with an illness for quite some time. So it's not that it's surprising, but even if they're on hospice and we know they're experiencing the death process, we never know exactly what day is this going to happen? What time is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? How are they going to look? What are they going to say? Are they going to react a particular way? Am I going to react a particular way? Like I've never done this before with them. And even if we are talking about the loss of a relationship, you know, that's one of the hardest things about relationships, isn't it? That they are inherently uh, something we can't predict entirely. We don't always know how someone's going to react to something or whether they're going to stay with us in a relationship over a long time or if we're going to break up or how we're going to break up and how that's going to feel. So this unpredictable piece. And people on the spectrum will say, you know, if I knew exactly how long this relationship was going to last, how it was going to end, I could be okay. But it's the not knowing. And also with the death process. or So a lot of loss is not knowing exactly and being able to prepare yourself and feel like you know what's coming. So one way to try to help the individual on the spectrum, to help their nervous system adjust and feel more stable and structured in the midst of this changeable environment and this atmosphere of loss is to try to to add whatever structure we can. So let's say that a family knows that their pet of 18 years is uh, probably going to die within the next three months. And the individual on the spectrum is very, of course, very upset and has had this pet for most of their life. Let's say the individual starts deciding they cannot separate from the animal at all. So the person won't leave the house. They won't sleep upstairs in their own bed. They're constantly checking on the animal. They're wondering if the animal feels sad or lonely inside. They're checking the breathing. So here we have this, again, this kind of anticipation um, that's very anxious and ruminative and compulsive. I need to check and not be separated. And a lot of the reason for that is not knowing when and how. So if this person knew that, oh, in six weeks, um, the animal's going to pass in this way, they, were, they would feel more freedom to uh, behave with a wider range um, until that time. So I can go upstairs to my own bed. I can leave the house and come back. One way to add some structure, given that we, we don't know when that's going to happen, we can't control that, 
but we can control adding some structure in the meantime. So one idea might be to say, how do we as a family want to honor our pet during this time? And maybe to plan some things that we'll do in the meantime. Well, let's take family photos. Um, Let's keep an object that the pet loves and we'll keep this as a memento. And after the pet passes, have a plan for that too. So will the pet be buried in a particular place? Maybe you can plan that out with the individual and have them make choices. Do you think our pet would love to spend their passing here under this tree or in a pet cemetery and kind of plan that out. You can also plan things like, when this happens, we will X. Um, And make kind of um, a narrative about what will happen. You know, first we'll take time to each kiss the pet and we'll read this poem to them. And then we'll call so-and-so you know, whatever the plan is going to be. And an after plan would be nice too. So you could say, after our pet passes, we are going to feel sad and really wish that that just never had to happen. And you could have some ideas. You could say, you know, one thing I was thinking about is we could buy a special flower bush and plant it in a space around our home to always remember our special pet, that this was planted in honor of our pet and we always love and cherish that memory. So one of the things I would do is recommend adding some structure whenever possible. And the second thing just stems from what we said in the beginning is that The important thing is to realize that grief will look different on the spectrum at times. And the behaviors that the person engages in to protect their emotional self and to soothe themselves will look different. And just to try to plan to allow freedom for that and to realize this is what grief looks like in this person and that's okay. Now, the only time you really would want to get professionals involved to try to shift a particular behavior is if there's harm that's going on. So if they're not eating, if they're engaging in self-harm behaviors, those things, you know, we really want to shift those. But we also want to allow some freedom for those things in between where perhaps they need time alone. Perhaps they can't make eye contact and give people a hug. Um, So allowing that kind of freedom and interpreting it as their representation of grief, even though it looks quite different from how we might grieve in that situation. I'm really glad my colleague brought up this topic. I'm happy to talk about it to you today, and I'll see you for our next episode.